Uh, the reading is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honour and immortality. You will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the Lord of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. thank you that as we've just sung your grace is enough we thank you because your grace is really our only option and these verses these chapters of this book seek to make that clear to us that we have no other option outside of you that outside of you we face your just wrath but Lord we thank you that we come this morning with that not being the full stop at the end of the sentence, but that even in light of our unworthiness and our unrighteousness, you have provided through your Son a way by which we can be made righteous, that dressed in your righteousness alone, faultless, we stand before your throne. And so, Lord, I pray as we open your word together, we would continue to worship you by listening to you, Pray, Spirit, that you might speak through me, that the words of your word might come to life within us and might fill us with wonder and awe and love and gratefulness again as we think on just who you are and what you've done for us. 
So we pray that you would be with us in this time now. Amen. You keep that um, passage there open sort of before you in whatever format you've, you've got it. You will find that helpful, I think, to try and follow uh, this along. Uh, one of my sort of many uh, binges through whatever lockdown it was, and I was very slow on the uptake uh, on this, was to uh, binge through the series Line of Duty. Uh, and so one of my sort of uh, heroes through lockdown was, was this guy, Ted Hastings, like the battle. Uh, and if you watch Line of Duty, if you manage to follow along with that, one of the things you'll know about Ted is, as he frequently says about himself, there is one thing that he's interested in, and that is bent coppers. Well, Paul, in these verses here, in this section of Romans, from chapter 1 up to chapter 3, verse 20, he is interested in one thing and one thing alone, and that is making you abundantly aware of your guilt before God. He is presenting, in essence, a case for the prosecution against you, whoever you are, whatever your story, whatever your background. And we've seen part of that last week as he's turned and he's focused especially on those who have been particularly rebellious. And there's been particular uh, kinds of things that have uh, outworked that. And that's one way in which you can turn your hand and your head against God. But now this morning he pivots to another group. But he still has this focus. Former professor, Sir Thomas Taylor, professor of law at Aberdeen University and then a principal, made Romans a prescribed text for his law classes. Because he said, in his view, it presented one of the best examples of presenting an unassailable case for a prosecution in all of literature. And you see it in the language. You see it in that language that we've already encountered here of righteousness, of being, and the word comes from the Greek legal system of being declared righteous. We hear of judgment being passed, of judges, of law, of those being without excuse. And the word literally is having no defendable case. It's worth saying this because a new perspective on Romans and on Paul has claimed in recent decades that actually this sort of view of Romans, one, is wrong, and two, comes more from a medieval sort of uh, legalistic view of things. Those are the reformers, Luther and Calvin of others of the 15th and 16th centuries, not from Paul and not from first century spirituality at that. Except this kind of presentation is very clearly Paul's intent. And it's not true to say that that view of it only came with Luther and Calvin and the other reformers of the medieval age. In fact, it really emanates, and they're at pains to tell you it, that both Luther and Calvin derive much of their theology on justification and on Paul from St. Augustine around 12 to 1300 years their senior. Paul wants to do one thing to nail you to the wall, that you know at some point in one of those groups, in one of those sections, he's talking about you. 
And so Paul is building this case up for us. He set out his gospel in those first 17 verses of chapter 1. And he said it's the power of God to save because it's the gift of Jesus' righteousness to us. That is what makes it the power to save. That is what he's so confident in and why he'll say I'm not ashamed. is because it's that gift of righteousness to unrighteous people that enables them to be saved. And then he's built that up in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1 by saying, this is necessary because God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness, which we all have apart from him. That sort of first verse there, verse 18, really in some ways is the sort of header and everything that comes then after from uh, verse 19 there to uh, chapter 3, verse 20 is a whole bunch of different groups and different ways in which you might show that you are full of ungodliness and unrighteousness and that you need Christ's righteousness to be saved before him. And so in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 2, he spoke specifically to rebels who are mainly Gentiles, and they're mainly Gentile kinds of sins. But now he turns to a very different crowd, a more judgmental crowd, primarily, but not exclusively, probably those of a Jewish background. And remember the context that we've said a few times, which is important to understanding the book, that this is a church that's struggling to handle the sort of cultural differences between both Jew and Gentile. Or maybe to put it in more contemporary terms, it would make more sense to us because that's really less of a sort of concern for us, religious and irreligious people. It's a church planted by Jewish converts at Pentecost. Jews then exiled from Rome under Claudius. And Gentiles have taken over the running of the church. And now Jews have been allowed to return. And both groups attempted to look down upon each other. The Jews attempted to look down upon Gentiles because they'll say, well, we're very religious, we're more holy because we keep the Torah. We're very respectable, actually. Our lives are really quite together. And so it's quite easy to look down upon Gentiles who may well have been guilty of some of those sins in verses 18 to 32. Quite easy to spot reckless sins. But oddly enough, Gentiles were very prone to look down upon Jews because they'll say we're more spiritual, we're more holy because we just have faith. We don't keep all these rules. And Paul's aim is to unify them, to speak to them both separately in different moments and to correct both groups of their error. What we find this morning is there's bad news for judgmental people. The bad news is you face the same judgment as those that you judge apart from Christ. So I want to show you just three things in these verses here. Firstly, that we're judged by God. Secondly, that we're judged by our works. And thirdly, that we're judged fairly. Firstly, look, if you look at those first five verses there, we're judged by God. And Paul turns here to a group who think that they've got it. They've heard verses 18 to 32, and they've agreed with him. They've said, amen, brother Paul. Yeah, there are those out there who are committing sins that are reckless. Amen, call them out. They deserve judgment. They think they've got it. They haven't got it at all. They think they deserve judgment because they're rebellious sinners. And Paul wants to say, no, no, you haven't got what I've said yet at all. You face God's judgment too. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness, respectable as well as reckless sins. 
God's wrath is revealed against all the ungodly Jews just as much as Gentiles. You haven't got it at all. Therefore, Paul tells us, Paul's been talking to rebels, now he transitions because he anticipates this wrong response. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And this is a legal term again here, one who has no excuse. The word means you have no logical case. You have a case that is hopeless to defend in court. There's no evidence that you can present that's going to possibly stack up. And it comes very specifically, very explicitly from the courtroom. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. John Calvin, writing on this, says, This report is directed against hypocrites who dazzle the eyes of men by displays of outward sanctity and even think themselves to be accepted before God as though they had given him full satisfaction. Hence Paul, after having stated the grosser vices that he might prove that none are just before God, now attacks saintlings of this kind who could not have been included in the first catalogue. The point is that what Paul is seeking to address here, what he's uh, seeking to attack, is not that you can never judge. In fact, you can. The whole premise, really, of this section is that there is one who can judge. There is one who is befitting of that role. His point is, you have no excuse if you judge, but have done the same things. You have no place to judge if you're a hypocrite, really. He imagines that there's this crowd having heard verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1 and thinking, yes, get the boot in, Paul, because I'm not that, and those people deserve what's coming. And now Paul will pull the rug. Why do they have no case? Why is it that they have no excuse, no logical case, a case that's hopeless to defend in court? For in passing judgment, and again, that's a legal term. The word literally means in bringing to trial another. You condemn yourself because you practice the same things. Judgmental people, primarily Jews, though not exclusively here, certainly religious people. People who are very concerned and very careful about their life actually being seemingly all together absolutely do not accept that they do the same things. That's important to say, isn't it? This crowd who would be hearing this from Paul absolutely would not accept that they do the same things. Paul says that they do, but they would not have accepted that, and they don't today. He'll return to that in verses 17 to 28, which we'll see over coming weeks. He'll prove that case. But you condemn yourself because you practice the same things. He says, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. God judges sinful mankind. He doesn't need any help in so doing. But now he comes back to these hypocritical judges. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? And Really, this is a rhetorical question. Because Paul assumes that they do. The uncomfortable answer here is, do you suppose you'll escape the judgment of God? The uncomfortable answer is, yes, they do. They actually do. They think they will escape it. (coughs) They believe that they will be excused. They're respectable. 
They're not reckless. Well, these rebels deserve all they had coming. And yet they won't be. They will not be excused. Here's the problem, isn't it? That you'd better be perfect if you're going to judge. You'd better not have any skeletons in your closet that'll come out to haunt you. Why, Jesus, in a particular legal rambling, will say to those who would want to stone a woman caught in adultery, okay, let the one without sin cast the first stone. They realize after reflecting upon it, none of them can. And so they return home with their tails between their legs. And interestingly, there's a nice aside that John puts in there that starting with the oldest, they went home. Starting with the ones who had built the most of their life upon all this, they realized even we can't do it. We can't seriously say that we're without sin. You'd better be perfect if you're going to perform the role of judge. It's the reality that the world is struggling to deal with, isn't it? It's the problem with cancel culture and the reason that it is not a viable plan to redeem society. Because the only sort of sense of salvation is in eliminating any transgressors. There is no hope of restoration. And because this can only work if anyone is perfect and no one is perfect. Comedian Ricky Gervais, reflecting on this, says, I want to live long enough to see the younger generation get cancelled by the next generation. It's going to happen. Don't they realise that? It's like they're next. That's what's funny. No one is perfect enough. In five, ten years' time, maybe five months' time, things that we thought were so right now, people will look back on and think, how bigoted was that? You'd better be perfect if you're going to judge in this way. In fact, the problem comes from the fact that they don't seem to be experiencing God's judgment at present. But the reason they're not experiencing God's judgment is not because they're not due it, but because of God's grace. Verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, of his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Rather than God's grace in actually not having uh, uh, executed judgment on them to this point, or at least as far as they could see and feel and experience in any punitive way, rather than that inspiring a change of heart, it's seen as something owed to them. How could God do otherwise than bless me? And isn't this a problem? That people think that God owes them. Is a funny sort of example of this from Friends. Uh, Ross has a major shampoo explosion and his response in seconds is to turn to God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Forgetting that the suitcase is full of stolen wares from the hotel that he's been in that he considers is just written into the bill. People's default position is to assume that one, they're good, that two, God owes them, And that three, God owes them good things. You see it in a comical way there. But actually you see it throughout culture. But why? Does he owe you good? What leverage do you really have on him to force that from him? And yet people do. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience? 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. You know, there's a quiet, respectable, polite stubbornness of the judgmental who think they are better. They're not, and they'll get their just desserts in time on that day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a coming judgment from God, which he knows and he executes, and we don't know and we are not part of. We are judged by God. But secondly, we're judged by works. Look at verses 6 to 11 there. He'll render to each one according to his works. God's judgment is executed justly and equitably among all. There's three things we can see just in that little sentence there. Firstly, that he will. That judgment is wrong for us because it's above our pay grade. It's God's job. He will execute judgment. But secondly, it's to each according to their works. There's no preferential treatment, which I think Paul assumes here that some were expecting that there would be a preferential treatment, that Jews and Gentiles wouldn't be judged in the same way, that because of ethnically being a part of that people, there would be a favoured treatment. He judges each one according to his works. They thought that it doesn't matter what I do because of who I am. Perhaps most candidly, most shockingly, sort of expressed by former President Richard Nixon, in discussing the Watergate scandal with David Frost, he sort of managed to, and I think really probably the truth slipped out of him more than anything in describing that. And he's asked really, you know, are you not sort of assuming some sort of privilege for yourself here that you've done things that for everybody else would have been illegal, but somehow you've been able to get away with? says, I'm saying that when the president does it, then it is not illegal. Because of who I am, it doesn't matter what I do, but it does. It does, doesn't it? Each one will be judged according to his works. See, the Jews here, or judgmental people more generally, actually welcome a statement like that, I think, don't they? That each one is judged according to their works. I think they welcome it, because they think, I'll pass. I'll pass that test. My works are good. Isn't this great news? Each one will be judged according to their works. Fantastic. I can't wait for God to see my works and congratulate me. Whereas these people over here won't. And that's where they're mistaken. They have far too low a view of the righteousness that God requires. This is Jesus' point as he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. You say on numerous issues, you've heard that it was said, but I'm telling you, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. But the apex of the law is not just not to murder. You get that right. That's really the very beginnings of it. That there's a whole wealth of meaning and depth to it far beyond it, of not just don't murder, of that you ought to love and look after other people. A good day isn't returning home and so I didn't do a murder today. I nearly did, but I didn't do it today. I've had a good day. 
That's not the apex of the law. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, don't be angry in your heart. The one who in their heart imagines doing it, you've as good as done it. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. But I'm telling you, the one who even looks and in lust imagines what it might be like, you've as good as done it. You've heard it said to love one another. But it's not enough to just love those who love you. I'm telling you, you've got to love your enemies. Everybody can love those who reciprocate. That's no test. But what do we get like when we are around our enemies? Those who actively reject our affection. Reject our affection, but not only that, there's animosity coming back. What do we do then? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Sort of justice, because other people are saying, you know, (laughs) one person hits me, I kill him. An eye for an eye, justice. You've heard that, but I say, don't retaliate at all. Don't resist. If someone slaps you, offer your other cheek for them to punch you. That's the point of Jesus saying that. The slap is an insult. Turn the other cheeks, they can hit you properly. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Their problem is they have far too low a view of the righteousness that God expects. If you think that you possibly can or could ever appease God by meeting the law, you are so deluded beyond belief. You need to realize you've no chance. That's why Jesus will say again in discussion with the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe of me because he wrote of me. What's his point in saying that? Because Moses doesn't explicitly do that, except for maybe in one place in Deuteronomy 18. But by and large, he doesn't really explicitly do that. Actually, most of it really is about the sort of laws you keep before God. What he's saying is, if you really read it, if you really understood it, you'd know you couldn't do it, that you need a substitute for you you would have got it, that actually this whole thing is always about a substitute stepping in for me. That the lamb wasn't just that God really likes lamb, but that you always need a substitute. They have too low a view of the righteousness God requires. And so now there's a contrast of two groups here in verses 7 and 8. That there are those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, He will give eternal life. And you can see three elements of that sentence. There's a conduct, those who by patience in well-doing. And then there's a motivation. They seek for glory, for honour, for immortality. And then an outcome. He will give eternal life. And then again, a second group in verse 8. Those who are self-seeking. There's the motivation. And don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There's the conduct. And then here's the outcome. There will be wrath and fury. The group of verse 7, the sort of righteous, is no one. No one. No one can seriously claim they're like this. It's none of us. The group of verse 8, the unrighteous, is everyone. No one can seriously claim they're not like that. It's all of us. With that being the case, there's no one who has a right to judge. There's no one who has a right to see themselves as better than anyone else. 
There's no one who doesn't do the very same things. There'll be tribulation, verse 9 here, and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. God's judgment on the unrighteousness of humanity is universal. It's on the basis of your works, what you actually do for both Jews and Gentiles. And yet God's salvation from unrighteousness of humanity is universal also on the basis of your faith in Christ's work for you, both for Jew and for Gentile. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Except nobody does that, do they? Nobody does that apart from Christ. And so we're directed back to chapter 1, verse 16, that it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality, we're told in verse 11. And that's Paul's major theme here, or one of them at least, that he judges you on your works, not your background. There's some who felt the privilege of their respectable religious background would secure them a less harsh judgment or maybe no judgment at all. He wants to say, no, that's not the case at all. While that says something good about God, his impartiality, his fairness, uh, that's actually bad news for us, isn't it? Because there's no buying this judge off. Lastly here, we see that we're judged fairly in verses 12 to 16 here. See, the question might be, verses 12 to 13 here, do I actually need the law of God to be moral? Do I need to have had that in order to be able to do good? And the answer we can give is no, but that's not good. And the second question in verses 14 to 16 would be, can those who don't know the law do the law? And the answer is yes, but once again, that's not good. Look at verse 12 there. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. R.C. Sproul uh, explains it this way. He says, the point is not that the Jews who had the law were sinning against God, while the Gentile pagans who did not have the law were obeying the law. Paul is saying that those who have the law perish with the law. And those who do not have the law perish without the law. People demonstrate by their actions, by what the philosophers call the ius gentium, the law of the nations, that even if they have never seen the Ten Commandments, God has written his law on their hearts. Their behavior reveals that they know in their hearts the difference between right and wrong. Both Jew and Greek have consistently defied God, and they'll be judged according to the light that they've been given. The Jews will have a greater judgment because they have greater light but the Gentiles are not without light. Paul's point isn't so much that Gentiles do the law without knowing it, but Jews, though knowing it, can't do it. The point is made here in the case of the Jews uh, that they had felt that having been given the law somehow granted them a privileged position over Gentiles in the judgment. And so Paul is pushing back on that. He says it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. You've no extra gain by having had it, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. 
Your knowledge of the law isn't what's judged. It's your adherence to it. So the solution is not merely just education. It's not to just hear more about it. It's whether you've actually done it or not. Being the ones who've been granted it gains you no further privilege than the ones who haven't had it. You've both not done it. You've both not kept it. You both perish. When Gentiles who don't have the law, verse 14 says here, by nature do what the law requires, even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And it begs us to ask a question here of to what extent can Gentiles, those who haven't had the law, those who are not religious, those who have not heard of God's standards here, to what extent might they be able to keep the law? Because Paul uh, outlines here that sometimes they do manage to keep the law in some places, in some times. So to what extent can they keep it? Maybe the best way to put it is to say that even a broken clock is right twice a day. It's not that people are never capable of good. Of course they are. They do at some times, although we might perhaps pause and question the motivations. But no, people are capable of good, and they do good on occasions, don't they? But it's not about actions so much as it is nature. That there's this depravity, this brokenness, this effect of sin that affects all of life for everyone at all times. So that you might, on occasion, be able to do some good things. Yes, that's not the same as keeping the law. There's only any point in keeping the law if you keep all of the law. It's the way that law works. There's this thing in art, and and perhaps um, some of you are more cultured than me, so this will have been less of a shock to you, Uh, but I I once did some sort of painting classes. I was never really any good. I can draw a bit, but I can't paint. It was wildly unsuccessful, um, but fun for a couple of weeks. When you're mixing paints, uh, when you start with a brilliant white and you add colours to it, you will never, ever be able to get back to white again. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't how much, matter how much more white you put into it to try to make it white. You will never, ever, ever get back to white again. You could have different shades of grey or sludge or whatever else, depending on how much different colours you put in and how much white you try to put back into it. But you'll never get back to that brilliant white That's the nature of sin within humanity. It'll look different in different people. And the kind of people that Paul's talking to here, no, probably haven't committed some of the same things of chapter one. But nonetheless, they stand guilty before God and unable in and of themselves to do anything about it. And in fact, there are times when Gentiles here who don't have the law do what the law demands. But that is not as positive as it may sound. In fact, it is an indictment because it shows that the law is universal. It shows that there is a universal code of morality and it condemns Gentiles that knowing it innately, they don't do it always. 
The fact that they can do it sometimes proves that they know in their heart and their soul that it is a universal law, but it also proves and condemns them for the times they don't do it. You might think that the ability to do it sometimes would be a good thing. In fact, and this is Paul's point here, it condemns you further, that you do kind of know that that's wrong. You do kind of know that that's right. You can't start to say, well, I simply didn't know. You did. Because sometimes you keep it. Their conscience also bears witness. The presence and the effect of conscience makes no evolutionary sense whatsoever, does it? The presence of the conscience points again to that universal morality which necessitates an author. God, even Descartes had to admit that. He had to admit some sort of sense of a God who sparks things off because he knew it's completely uh, impossible to argue for a reasonable and rational and intelligible world if there's not someone who has made it so. It's completely unreasonable to suggest there's any kind of coherence or logic without there being an author to it. The presence of the conscience points to the universal nature of morality. It condemns because the inability to follow conscience. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The ability to sometimes think right accuses as much as it excuses. Because why don't you do it all the time if you can do it some of the time? And there's a day coming, we're told here, on that day when God judges the secrets of man. No one can judge, because only Jesus will judge all, even the secrets. See, if you came away from the section on rebels feeling good, because you don't do any of that, they've not been your struggles. You feel as though you might be a little bit better than that. And bad news. Because God... Judges you just the same. You're guilty of just the same things. From verse 17 onwards, Paul will prove some of how this happens. But judgmental people are in no better position. To be unrighteous or ungodly, as verse 18 of chapter 1 told us, you don't just have to do bad things. You can be just as unrighteous and ungodly doing very good things. That's a problem. The first list was a list of bad things. Obviously reckless things that it was easy to pick up on. They're very visible. Now Paul is starting to scratch away at some of the good things you might do in an ungodly and unrighteous way. But it gets even harder because you don't even have to act out things to have sinned. Again, that was Jesus' point of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm saying if you've done it in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. I'm saying if you've thought about it and lingered on that and imagined and fantasized, you've done it. You've heard it said to love those who love you. I'm saying you have to love your enemies. You've heard it said an eye for an eye. I'm telling you don't resist. You don't even have to act out to sin. That's where it gets even harder. 
Even the Pharisees get this reality that actually the more you think about it, the deeper that it goes, the more impossible it is to justify yourself. That he who is without sin cast the first stone. Their response, the only logical, natural response is to, after having thought on it, go home. Because none of them could. All you have to do is make everything about you. Verse 8 there told us, those who are self-seeking don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. All you have to do is make everything about you. You can be very polite about it. You can be very sort of together, very religious, perhaps even with it. But make everything about you and you'll be no better than the rebel. It's not that there's some righteous and some unrighteous. All are unrighteous. And so we need that hope of chapter 1, 16 to 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of Jesus is granted, is gifted to you in place of your unrighteousness. From faith for faith, as it's written, the one who is by faith righteous shall live. So that we might, as we sung earlier, stand clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless before the throne. In a few moments, we'll have chance to practically place faith and trust once again in this very act of Jesus' gift of his righteousness for us in our place as we share communion together. And this is a way in which we kind of physically, symbolically recognize that together. And there's something fitting in doing it together in that you see the person next to you whoever they are, whatever their story, whatever their background, having to do the very same thing. You're reminded that you're not alone, that we stand together in the same need. and We stand together with the same gracious provision from God. And we stand together putting our faith in him alone again. So hopefully you've got a little... Um, Looks like the sort of old travel sort of milk things. Thanks, Kev. Uh, they're with you. We've uh, laboured in this text today that's wanted to show us the depth of our need and that apart from Jesus, we face the just wrath of God against our sin. The wrath of God is revealed Chapter 1, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so our only hope is that our sin be exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we come to the table to demonstrate our need and to demonstrate our trust in the gospel's provision. In scripture, we're encouraged not to take this meal in an unworthy manner and to examine ourselves as we come before God. So as we approach this meal, let's pray together.
Father God, we come guilty, pleading for your forgiveness. We come hungry, needing to be fed. We come empty-handed, seeking your provision. We confess that we've fallen short of your glory. We've lived for ourselves and lost sight of you. We've turned in our hearts to other saviours. We've hurt others in order to help ourselves. Forgive us and feed us in this meal, we pray. Gracious God, we recall the death of your son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim his resurrection and ascension. And we look with expectation for his coming as Lord of all the nations. Amen. So, as we come to this meal, draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, and his blood, which was shed for you. And feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And happy are those who find refuge in him. Scripture tells us he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so I welcome you if you're placing your faith and trust in Christ Jesus this morning to join with me in sharing the bread together. Likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is the, uh, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So I invite you to join with me in sharing the juice together once you can uh, find your way in. It's a bit fiddly, isn't it? Gracious God, we praise you for what you have given and for what you have promised us here. You've made us one with all your people in heaven and on earth. You've fed us with the bread of life and renewed us for your service. Now we give ourselves to you and we ask that our daily living may be part of the life of your kingdom and that our love may be your love, reaching out into the life of the world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, if you keep hold of the sort of little pots and if, if you're okay to dispose of them sort of afterwards, that would uh, really help us. Uh, we're going to sing a closing song together in a couple of moments. Jesus paid it all. So I invite you to uh, stand with me to sing. Once Gordon can get to his seat. <laughs>